like for you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we'll continue our study tonight. If you were going to um, characterize our generation, how would you do it? Probably you'd want to characterize this generation as a generation that is uh, plagued, shot through with tension and fear and stress. Can you imagine a, an archaeologist a thousand years from now trying to describe our civilization? He undercover, you know, he, under, he uh, uh, digs up this generation, this civilization, with its fast lanes and fast food chains. And he finds one of these red signs that says, Four billion hamburgers sold here. Now you can imagine what a guy's going to think when he sees something like that. An age that's uh, filled with um, stress and tension and fear. In the 1980s, the number one killer was heart disease. I read in a uh, medical journal, a medical magazine a few months ago, that in the 80s, 38% of the people who died in the 80s died from heart disease that was brought on by stress and anxiety and pressure. And suicide is growing at an alarming rate. Someone shared with me recently that one on the bestseller list is a book entitled The Manual to Self-Deliverance. And it is a book on how to commit suicide and euthanasia. And it was written by a group in Britain, that an organization in Britain that boasts of 6,000 members, and they actually tour the country giving lectures on the advantages of suicide and mercy killing and how to do it. And the book was written, was to be published on demand, and thousands have inquired about the manual of self-deliverance and as a waiting list to get the book. It is number two cause, suicide is a number two cause of death among college students next to traffic accidents. And it is the number three cause of death among children and youth next to traffic accidents and murders and suicide has grown in the last decade among children and youth by a hundred percent. The number one selling drug in the 80s is a tranquilizer called Valium. Sociologist Rollo May call, says that anxiety is the most critical problem facing modern America and he names anxiety as the official emotion of our generation. You know we had an official emotion and that it's anxiety? Some wag said whoever, who, whoever isn't schizophrenic isn't thinking clear. Anxiety runs the extreme from, from normal to destructive, from healthy to dangerous, it's this churning that goes on inside your stomach. Now some of you came tonight with that churning. You've lived with it for the most of your life, this churning down deep inside, caused by broken dreams, 
and shattered homes, fractured marriages, and horrible relationships that we seek desperately to, clean, to cure, can't. Robert Wise has a book called Your Churning Place, and he likens the stomach of the average American to the old-time washing machine that just keeps on churning and grinding. And he says that our stomachs are tanks that hold stagnant infection. Do you find that anxiety keeps you awake when you'd like to be sleeping? Keeps you running when you ought to be standing? Then you may find some help from this scripture. Now I'm not about tonight to suggest that that this passage of scripture can give you a 100% cure from worry and anxiety. That'd be not just simplistic, that would be unrealistic and even stupid. But the scripture suggest that it is possible for you to relieve yourself of some stress, the churning that goes on inside your stomach. Now the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews is tied to chapter 3. It's unfortunate that there is a chapter division because chapter 4 goes with chapter 3 and it ties to this historical setting. I want you to look at chapter 3 with me at verse 16 just, by, just for a moment of review. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they shall not enter, in, enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were not able to enter His rest because of unbelief. Now remember a principle that I taught you several months ago, and that is this, that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian faith, and the Old Testament gives us pictures of the Christian faith. So that the New Testament gives us the principle that we can enter into a a rest, into a life of the fullness of God's blessing and peace. And the Old Testament pictures that, and one of the great pictures of it is the entering into the land of Canaan. You remember that they came to Kadesh Barnea, those who had been delivered from Egyptian bondage, and they did not go in to to the land of Canaan because of disobedience and unbelief, and it pictures that they did not enter into the fullness of the blessing of God and the peace that passes human comprehension that's available through faith in Him. And so they spent 40 years churning in the wilderness and died there. And so he moves into chapter 4 with this statement, Therefore, let us fear. Now that, kind of, that seems kind of strange. We're going to preach a sermon tonight on how to have rest, to have, how to enter into God's peace. And we, talk, and we begin the sermon with fear. <laughs> Sounds kind of a contradiction and a paradox. What he's saying is that we need to be afraid lest we reproduce history, lest we make the same mistake that the children of Israel made, that what we really have to fear is that we will will, um, repeat 
the mistake of history. H.G. Wells said, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. We, we often make the same mistakes, and so the author of the book of Hebrews said, don't, uh, you know, be careful, be fearful, lest you repeat the mistake of history and not enter into rest. For there is possible the rest of the Lord, the peace that's available in God. Now, we need to work on this verse 1 just a minute. Enter into rest. Now, the, the, the word enter is a word that means to take, to, to enter the place of, to go into, and it refers to an action or an activity. If you're going to take a plane ride, you enter into that plane. If you're going to an athletic contest at the, uh, at the gymnasium, you go into the gymnasium. If you come to worship, you enter a center of worship. You go into and enclosure, and you're secure there, protected there. It's kind of a physical womb. Now the point is that this entering into rest is not something that happens automatically. Watch this. It is not automatic to the new birth. You are not new birthed into rest. So this is true that a person can be a Christian and live his life with anxiety. A person can be born again and be eaten up and riddled by anxiety, fear, and tension. Because just because you're a Christian does not automatically enter you into rest. It is an activity or an action that you have to deliberately enter into. Now if you can imagine with me that this platform here is the place of resting. That is the place of the peace of God that passes human comprehension. The place of the no churning stomach. And this is the place of God's rest. Let's take a look at the, the word rest. It's, it, it means to cease from something. You've heard, of the, you've heard the statement, perhaps used it, that you're going to put something to rest. So that when you enter into His rest, you put something to rest. You leave something behind and you come into God's resting place. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews says that you need to fear lest you live with the available space to enter in to God's rest and you live outside of that space and be in, eaten up with anxiety. You have this resting place and never enter into it so you live the rest of your life with worry and anxiety and fear and tension or you can put your anxieties aside and enter the state of God's rest. Now. It is not some kind of, um, you know, gobbledygook that you learn to say. It's not getting attached to some guru. I, you know, every Saturday in the Dallas Morning News, there's this big testimonial concerning uh, TM, uh, Transcendental Meditation, and these people there, their pictures tell about 
uh, learning TM and what peaceful rest they have. And this picture of this guru there, this Indian uh, uh, philosopher that they follow, that's not entering, in, that's entering into bondage. But there is a rest that is available for the people of God. Now listen to me carefully. There are some this, morning, this evening who live their lives out in tension and fear and anxiety. And there are some who have found the resting place of God and have entered into that rest and there is no churning. Now what is the difference? Well, there's an explanation in verses 2 through 8. I want you to get three things, please. First of all, these are two or three guidelines for entering into His rest. I got this call last week, and it was a week before I left for England. This guy called me. He said, can you come out to my place of business? I can't leave my place of business. I need to talk to you. So I did. and went out to his place of business. He had his Bible open on his table. He said, I've been listening to you preach on Sunday night about the entering into rest. He said, I am absolutely torn apart with some kind of major critical problem I'm facing in my life. He said, I want you to teach me how you enter into that rest. He said, I want that for my life. You tell me what I've got to do to enter into rest. Well, there are two or three guidelines for entering into rest. Number one, you need the right formula. That's not a real good word, but it's the best I can think of. Or you need the right combination, and the right combination is found in verses 2 and 3. Look. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that dress, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, who is the, who are, who's he talking about when he uses the pronoun the, they and them? He's talking about the first, those um, Israelites under Moses. And who's he talking about when he's talking about us? He's talking about Christians of the first century and those who are united with those Christians through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he said they did not enter into rest because they did not believe the message they heard. But we have entered into rest because we have heard that message and have acted on it in faith. Now here is the formula. You hear the message of the rest that's available in Christ there is the hearing plus the believing equals the resting. Now what is this believing? It's not just believing it with your head. It is acting upon the truth about it. It is responding in, in, in trustful obedience. It's acting upon the truth and entering into the rest. You hear the message and you act upon it in faith. That's the combination. You hear the sermon, you hear the gospel that there is peace in Jesus Christ, there is no churning, and you act upon that message in faith. Second guideline. There must also be the right attitude. Look at verses 4 and 5. He's quoting 
from Genesis and from Psalms. And he says, For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter in they shall not enter my rest. Now I want you with your Bibles, yes, everybody has to do it. I want you to turn back to the second chapter of Genesis. I want to show you something intriguing, something interesting. The second chapter, well, of Genesis, actually the first chapter. You go to the first chapter of the first book. Let me show you something interesting here. When God created the events the things He created on the first day, He says in verse 5, And there was evening and there was morning one day. Look at verse 8. He said, And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. And He created what He created on the third day. He says, And there was evening and there was morning and there was the third day. And He says, There was evening and there was morning and there was the fourth day and the fifth, and the sixth. But when it comes to, to the seventh day, it says that He rested on the seventh day, and it does not say there is evening and there was morning, and that was the seventh day. You know why? Because He's still resting. He's still resting. And where is He resting? He is resting in His resting place so that all of His creative activity He did on six days, and now He is enjoying creative rest in His resting place. And He opens up His arms to us and says, Come on in to my resting place. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. And they came to Kadesh Barnea and God said, Come on in to my resting place. Lay aside your anxieties and let God handle them for you and enter into His rest. Understand that God has a resting place. He does rest now and I can enter into that rest. The right attitude. Now if you'll put your, go back to, to Hebrews chapter 4 with me and put your name in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for Gerald Tidwell to enter it. Now I want you to catch something that we need to grasp and get a hold of and think of every day. That God saved you from everything that troubles and disturbs and destroys. He saved you from that. He accomplished for you the destruction and defeat of everything that troubles man. And He offers you, to, and He did that for the purpose that you might live in rest, that you might live free from anxiety. And He opens that, His arms to you and says, Come into this rest. Now, if God chose to rest when He finished His creative work and invited me to enter into rest, then that creative rest is better than anything that I could ever do for Him. So that the purpose of my life tonight, according to the book of Hebrews, 
is not how I can do something to make God like me, but how I can find His rest and enter into it. That's the most creative work I can do. There's a third guideline. has to do with timing. has to do with timing. Look at verses 7 8 and 8. He again fixes a certain day... Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now, the timing is this it's today. Today. You remember when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and God fed them manna? That manna was good only for one day. You couldn't store it up. You couldn't put it in your pocket. You couldn't put it in your briefcase and the, uh, you know, put it in the shelf on the shelf and have it tomorrow. It, it rotted after one day. It was good just for one day. Let me tell you something. The rest that you enter into is good just for one day. Today. So that every morning of your life, this is the way you and I ought to begin our morning is to come every morning of our life and say, Lord, today I want to enter into your rest. I want your will known today. I want your purposes accomplished today. I'm going to experience your power and guidance today. Today, every day of your life, you enter into rest. You can't enter that rest once and for all. It's something that has to be done day after day after day. And verse 9 says that it is available to every one of us. Now, back to the guy who told me, who asked me, how do you do it? I read him verse 11. Read it with me. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. That word diligent in the Greek is a word that means labor. If you've got a King James Bible, it says labor. It means to bend every, are you listening? It means to bend every effort. It means to give diligence to it. Now, if it is entering into something that is an activity and an action, it doesn't happen automatically. It means that we have to be diligent, we have to bend every effort to enter into it. But the goal of the Christian life is the life of rest. The goal of the Christian life is the life of victory. The goal of the Christian life, the purpose He saved you for, is, is the life of fullness and blessing and peace. And we must bend every effort to enter into that kind of life. And we must fear lest we live our life out and never enjoy that. One of my best friends, a guy I named my son after, his last name was Todd. He told me one time, he said, I live in constant fear that I'll get to heaven and God tell me I missed the purpose for my life. Well, wouldn't it be tragic if we got to heaven and just saw a panorama of the marvelous rest life that we could have enjoyed and missed? It's, a, it's, it's the most uh, tragic thought that a man can think. Now, by way of application, there are three enemies to the rest life. There are three enemies. One is presumption. Presumption. 
It's saying, I've got it all figured out. I know exactly what God's going to do. I'm not going to, I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have the money to make this next mortgage payment next month. But I've got it all figured out. God's going to drop, a, 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 He's going to dump some bucks in my mailbox. You know, I've got it all figured out. That's the way God's going to take care of me. There, there is it's a matter sometime that we presume that God's going to do some things he, not, you know, he never intended to do in the first place. Not too long ago I was out visiting or I was doing something. I came back in and Joanne told me about a person who had come from Texas to Durant, Oklahoma, looking for uh, somebody that wanted to give her a brand new car. It wasn't a Volkswagen she was after either, an economy car. They wanted a luxury car because part of their ministry was to carry around wealthy people, and they wanted a luxury car to do that. And, uh, and, and, and with the presumption that God was going to provide them a luxury car. Now, we presume that God's going to do th a lot of things that God never intended to do in the first place. Listen carefully. God will tell you what He wants you to pray for. And would you hear me carefully? You've caught up, you've confessed up your sin, and you're living the Spirit-filled life, and you're walking with God. You ask Him every day, Lord, what should I trust you for today? He'll tell you what you should trust Him for today, and you can rest in that trust. The rest is presumption. The second enemy is panic. I'm not going to make it. I'm panic, you know. Live in panic city. The third enemy is pride. Now that's the biggest one of all. It's the feeling, well, I can do this on my own. I can, take, I can handle this matter in life and, and I can do it on my own. Three enemies, presumption, panic, and pride. Not too long ago, or... A while back, some people had a contest and, and, and artists were asked to paint what they considered to be the most peaceful scene. They were to paint a picture of perfect peace. And one of them painted this placid little lake nestled in a mountain setting, not a ripple on the water, not a leaf blowing, just beautiful and placid lake. Another painted a, a pastoral scene, grazing cattle and sunlight and beautiful animals and gorgeous colors. The painting that won was the painting of a gigantic waterfall thundering over, you know, water pouring down. You could almost hear the noise. And there was this the limb of a tree hanging out over that waterfall being lashed by the spray of that gigantic waterfall and on that limb was a nest and a little bird sitting on it. And the caption of that painting was this, On a limb that swings sits a bird that sings, knows he has wings. Now I'll tell you what was not happening in that nest. 
there was no churning going on there. Because that bird had confidence in the resources that were available to escape the storm. Now you can live your life out if you want to, and I can live my life out if I as I choose, churning and anxious and fearful, or I can enter into the resting place of God. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And the reason he died was that I could have perfect peace. He said, my peace I give to you. Let's pray together. Father, we often come to face the fact that there is so much more available to us than we have ever appropriated. And while we strive to do something that will impress you and earn your pleasure and favor, you desire just that we enter into your rest. That you've accomplished the creative activity, the creative work, and open up your arms to us and say, Enter my rest and make, make yourself available to my peace. Help us, Lord, to enter into rest. Because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake and for our good. Is a messenger of Jesus Christ and a servant of the Lord and in his behalf as his ambassador, I offer you three invitations. The first invitation is to enter in to salvation's experience, to receive the gift of eternal life and all that God has made available through his death just by faith appropriation. I offer you the invitation to join the fellowship of believers and the strength of a local church. I offer you an invitation to, to rededicate yourself to Christ, to begin a walk with Him that's meaningful and fruitful. These are the invitations I extend, and I invite your response as we stand.